Well, good morning. morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, My name is Luke Schmelzer. Like Pastor Kendall told you earlier, I am leading a church plant in the Joliet, Illinois area, about two hours northeast of here. It's more Chicagoland-ish. It's in that big bubble of Chicagoland for everyone who's not from Illinois. Um, And so I bring you greetings as well from the members of that core group. Uh, the Moraleses, who have been here before, some of you have met them and their many children, uh, wanted to be here today, we weren't able to make it. And then we have another brother, Landon, who sends his greetings as well. So, as we begin the study of God's Word this morning through the preaching, I pray that you would have an open mind, an open heart, to hear what God's Word is speaking to us. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I would urge you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first main section of the book of 1 Timothy, verses 3 through 11. In our study today, we're going to be dealing with a couple topics that have unfortunately become controversial even in the church today. Topics of slavery, homosexuality, and abortion. Now, I'm not the type of person that goes looking for controversial topics. I don't enjoy riling people up, but as someone who aspires to ministry, I also have God's commands to faithfully explain and preach His Word without apology. And so, as we examine God's Word today, I think there are several very important things in here to encourage us, to direct us rightly to how to live as followers of Christ, and to point us always back to Christ and His work on our behalf. And so, as we begin today, I want to focus primarily on two main ideas. So, if you get nothing else out of the rest of this message, remember these two things. One, that as Christians, our aim is love. A love that is properly defined by God and His truth. Our aim is love. And two, the law is good if used lawfully that God's Word, the instruction that it has for us, is good. It's not evil, but we often are, and that's the conflict. So we have to consider today what it means to use God's law lawfully. So with that in mind, let us read from God's Word. We'll be focusing on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, but I'll read verses 1 and 2 as well. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and of Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God which is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, 
and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Would you pray with me one more time? O gracious God, we pray to you once more, asking for your blessing upon this time. You have gathered us together as the Lord's people on the Lord's day to read your holy word. And I pray now that as I begin and an attempt to explain your word faithfully, that you would give me clarity and compassion to speak your truth and love. And I pray that for all of us, that we would be transformed and further shaped into the image of Christ by what we hear today. That we would be convicted of the ways that we have fallen short of your law as a reflection of your good, holy, and just character. And that as we examine ourselves in light of the law, we would be driven more and more to trust in the righteousness of Christ, which may be ours only by faith. And that as we seek to live in light of what he has done for us and called us to, we would be more and more transformed into your image. God, give us holiness, give us love, and give us a reverence for your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so as we begin today, just a little bit of background on the book of First Timothy. This is something that I've been studying a lot lately in preparation for future, for future ministry work in our church plant. The books of First and Second Timothy and Titus are Paul's pastoral epistles, they've been commonly called. They're letters that have a specific focus more than almost any other book, I would say, on how the local church is to be run and practice and live. It contains a lot of concise summaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ's incarnation, his coming, his living, his dying, his resurrection, his ascending, and his coming again, and a lot of practical instruction as to how we are to live in light of those truths, especially how we are to conduct ourselves in God's household. And so he writes to Timothy. Paul, we know from the book of Acts, was someone who was persecuting Christians. He thought that that they were blaspheming God by claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, God incarnate. And so he persecuted the church until Christ himself confronts him on the road to Damascus. He knocks him off of his horse and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul realizes at Jesus' confrontation that he is the Messiah that they had been looking for, and that Christ commissions him, therefore, to go and spread this gospel that he was trying to suppress to all of the nations, given a special mission to reach the non-Jews as well. And so in the midst of his different missionary journeys, Paul traveling around the Mediterranean and the Middle East in order to spread this gospel of salvation through faith in Christ, he meets another guy named Timothy, who is a believer in Christ. He is a, a faithful worship, worshiper of Yahweh, and he comes to believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he is the Savior of the world. And so he joins Paul in his missionary journeys, and we have a letter written later on from Paul to Timothy 
reminding him why he's left him at this place in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, in the ancient Middle Eastern area. And so he instructs him, saying, this is from Paul, apostle of Christ, to Timothy, my child in the faith. And so he begins, verses, verses, let's look at just verse 3 for now. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so one of the key reasons that Paul, in traveling around in his missionary journeys to proclaim the gospel, one of the reasons that he calls Timothy to stay at a specific location is to keep working to build the church, to keep working to build up the body of believers that had come to faith in Christ and had gathered together as a worshiping body in the city of Ephesus. He says specifically, remain so that you may charge certain persons He's not eager to call people out by name, but he's willing to do so, as we'll see later. He says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul had learned from God's word. Paul, we know from historical context and from his use throughout the New Testament, is a master of the Hebrew Old Testament. He knows his Bible backwards and forwards better than than probably any of us in this room, maybe than most of us put together. And you see that the way that he weaves scripture in and out all the way through his writing, but also because he had been directly taught by Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus instructed him and gave him the authority of an apostle to speak by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When he says an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus, he says that what he's writing here is not just Paul's opinion, It's as authoritative as the words of Christ himself. And so the words of the gospel, the message and the doctrine, the teaching of truths that he's passed on to the people there at Ephesus are the doctrines that they're to cling to. It's not matters of indifference, like you can kind of take it or leave it. What God has provided for us to know and understand and to live by are our standard for living and belief. We don't have the right as Christians to add our own ideas and convictions on top of what God has plainly said. And so there's teachers here in Ephesus, and Paul is warning Timothy about these people. He's saying, instruct these people not to teach any different doctrine, any foreign doctrine, not to proclaim their own flights of fancy as if that was as authoritative as what God had said. It's one of the central duties of pastors and deacons, all leaders in the church, to instruct people in sound doctrine. That's one of the core messages in this book of 1 Timothy. Not just what a pastor is to be, we see his qualifications in chapter 3. Actually, if you just flip a page or two to chapter 3, we can see him there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, those first seven verses are all qualifications for what the character of an elder has to be. If someone's going to be a leader of the church, they have to meet these character qualifications, at least as best as sinful human beings can. It describes the work of deacons as well, but then in verse 14, 314, he says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and buttress of truth. So he's left him there. He's writing this letter 
to make sure that sound doctrine is being proclaimed. And more than just sound doctrine, but that we as Christians, and him specifically in Ephesus, that we may know how to conduct ourselves as God's people in God's house. If we are Christians, followers of Christ, then we are called to live by God's word, in God's world, by God's way. Those things, it takes us to work out a lot of the specifics and to trust leading of the Spirit, but above all, to trust what he has revealed himself plainly in his word. And so verse 4, he instructs them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So what's the situation here? What are they trying to deal with? Well, it seems like that these false teachers, these people who are introducing strange and foreign doctrines into the church, are striving after these kind of pointless things. They don't really bear any weight for the spiritual life. They're getting caught up. They're spending all of their time and energy on things that don't really matter. They're looking into things like myths and genealogies and speculation. We know that Ephesus, this city, is kind of at the crossroads of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. And so you would have the influence of all these different religions and mythologies, all of the the Percy Jackson gods and goddesses that we may know about, the Greeks and the Roman gods, the Persian gods, the the Gnostic mythology, the, the various levels of deity, and all this crazy stuff that we can get into from studying the history. And they may be in danger of bringing some of these foreign ideas of of the nature of God and salvation into the church, which is a great, great danger. And beyond that, we have people who are studying endless genealogies. So this is probably a practice that we know. We have a number of genealogies in scriptures, family trees, uh, tracing people's lineage back generations and generations. So what's the problem here? Well, probably these false teachers in Ephesus were people of Jewish descent who cared a lot about their heritage, and so they were getting caught up in trying to trace their own family line back generations and generations, past the exile to the point where they could identify themselves. Oh, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of the tribe of Levi, or whatever their family heritage is, and through that to go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way back to Adam himself. And so maybe they're studying these genealogies as a way to boost their own pedigree. That's not something that we as Americans put too much stock in, the kind of family line and lineage that you, you, you come from. Like, we're, we're not talking about the House of Windsor much over here in the colonies, but this is something that mattered deeply to them. So it may have been that people were trying to earn a place of authority in the church by claiming their place in some special family line. Or it may have been even worse that people were using kind of speculations and conspiracy theories to try and find out secret hidden messages in the genealogies. That if you arrange the names and the structure of the genealogies, you get some divine message. And we see this even today. Like, I remember in high school hearing someone say in a, in a high school, private school chapel that, that if you translate all the names from the first genealogy in Genesis, that it translates into a prediction of the gospel message. That if you translate all the names into English, then it's 
Man fell separated, split from God, and redeemed by the coming sun and all these things. And it sounded really, really cool until I learned Hebrew and realized that it wasn't even close. Like, some of those names maybe were a stretch. Some were just flat out wrong. And so we still have this stuff today that people are looking for hidden codes and secret messages where there are none. Instead of focusing on the very plain truths of Jesus is God in the flesh, believe in him and be saved. That's the point. And so if we spend our time digging into things that have no grounding in reality or don't actually affect anything of our beliefs in life, then we're missing the point. And that is pulling us away. It's distracting us from the stewardship of God that is by faith. The thing that God himself has delivered over to us, this word stewardship, which we'll talk in a moment, the dangers of of speculation, of going beyond God's word. Now, there's an important part of where we should study God's word deeply. That's very important. I'm not saying don't have strong opinions over things that matter. I am saying that if we try and speculate to such a degree that we lose our grounding in what God's actually said, then we're missing the point. I'm saying that there is a great danger in speculation. God spoke to Moses back in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses said this to the people, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what God has revealed to us, we as Christians have a responsibility to study, to know, and to obey, and to pass on to our children. But what God hasn't revealed It's pointless for us to speculate about. John Calvin commented on this passage, something along the lines of, when God closes his holy mouth, I stop trying to pry answers out of him. There are some things that are beyond our comprehension and are pointless to speculate about. Like if I were to stand up here today and ask you, what's God's favorite color? Because I really think that his favorite color is orange. And I'll go to the bat for that. I'll say, I'll have all these arguments and whatever it is to try and convince you God's favorite color is orange, and you've got to believe this too. And if all of our conversations revolve around what's God's favorite color, it's a huge waste of time. And there's nothing in the Bible that has anything to say about that. That would be meaningless speculation. But there's a lot of this stuff that's infiltrated not just the church in Ephesus, but many of our churches today. You think about the way that speculation has entered into the traditions of certain, of certain denominations over the centuries. I was reading earlier this week about the different doctrines, talking with a friend about the ideas of Mary and how her story and background has been expanded and expanded over the generations to where she's not just a holy woman who was blessed by God, but she was sinlessly conceived and never sinned this life and was bodily ascended into heaven just like Jesus was. Things that not only have no basis in what God has said, but even actually contradict what it has said. You think about all these other things, speculation about, about the nature of angels and demons and the Nephilim from Genesis and, and hidden Bible codes, the Da Vinci Code, which was so popular years ago about incorporating things like the role of the stars and astrology and and the healing power of crystals into our spiritual life. Things that, again, don't have a basis in God's word, but even contradict it. 
I was at an Arby's once in high school after a youth group, just talking with a friend. Uh, we were eating afterwards, just enjoying some curly fries, always a good time. Uh, and there was this older guy who was kind of overhearing our conversation. We were talking about what we learned at youth group and talking about Christ and the alcohol to, to serve him with our life. And he kind of interjects and says, oh, I'm a Christian too. And so we start chatting with him and talking about our faith. And it very quickly became apparent that one, he wasn't connected to any church or church authority. He was just kind of a lone wolf out by himself with no accountability whatsoever. That's a huge red flag, for one. But also, two, that the basis of this person's spiritual life was all of the, the crazy speculation you can find on the Internet. We were talking about Christ come in the flesh and the, the mysteries in the incarnation. He's like, yeah, 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 but, but what do you think about the Nephilim? Like, do you think they're angels and demons intermarried with humans? And, and what about, like, have you ever heard of Lilith, like the myth of Adam's other wife who became a demon and crazy stuff? And we got really weirded out and exited the conversation rather quickly because it became apparent that the basis of this guy's faith wasn't Christ crucified, wasn't Father, Son, and Spirit revealed in the Scriptures. It was whatever cool and interesting thing you could speculate about. So there is a great danger, even for us today. A danger of going off of and contrary to the stewardship that's given to us by God. Stewardship, this is a word that it goes back into the household language that he's going to talk about in chapter 3 that we may know how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. The stewardship is house order. It is, it is the, it's the stewardship, the management, the plan. It's the way that God has, has structured his household, the church, to run and believe. We see this also in Ephesians 3, verse 9, 8 and 9. To me, though I was the very least of all the saints, Paul says, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the stewardship, same word, of the mystery of God hidden for ages who created all things. So again, Paul later explains that this is part of his duty is to explain the things of God that have been revealed, the right order for his household and for our lives as Christians. This is what has been handed down to us, the faith once and for all handed down to the saints, as the book of Jude calls it. We have been entrusted with this body of truth, this body of doctrine in God's word, and we are to be held accountable to it. That this is the measure by which all other things are measured. That this is what we examine ourselves, our lives, our affections, our beliefs by. And to not move off of this into speculation because verse 5 the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith that the aim of our love the the central focus of what we are called to do as christians is love jesus summarized this in the two great commandments all of the law and the prophets hang upon this, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, summarizing all of what the law demands from us. Now those, again, as we've already discussed, those aren't a means of us earning our righteousness. 
if our salvation was dependent on how well we love God and love neighbors, none of us would make it. I haven't loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength for a second of my entire life. And even if I started to now, then 24 years of sin would still outweigh that. Even if I was sinless from here on out, good deeds don't cancel out the bad deeds. If you, if you appear before a judge and you're convicted of a crime, you can't say, but look at all the good things that I've done. No, because the good, the good doesn't cancel out the need for judgment on the bad. It's not karma. It doesn't just balance out in the end. But so what are these, what are these things compelling us to? That, that the goal of our life is love. That we as people who have been forgiven of our sins by faith in Jesus Christ, who have been counted righteous in his sight by his grace as a gift to us, then our drive, therefore, is to live in love as best we can as sinful human beings. That we are called, our goal in this life is to love God with all that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And these, he explains it with three things. It's a love that comes from, that issues from, a pure heart with, with cleansed and right affections that are our heart, our motivations are in the right place. It's not loving others out of a, a sinful motivation to get love back or whatever else it might be. Of a good conscience that we're not still burdened and weighed down by the weight of our guilt upon our guilty consciences or that our consciences don't actually live in love because we've quieted that, that voice of conscience. That our voice of conscience has been seared as Romans 1 talks about. That we're not actually living in love because we've kind of become dull to what good and evil are. It's a love that issues also from a sincere faith, a faith that's unhypocritical. It's not just pretend. It's not just showing up to church on Sunday to, to appease a family member, to, to make your mom happy or whatever it might be. It's a sincere faith. It's a sincere love that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not something that we can drum up in ourselves. This is beyond any of our power to do. But it is the gracious work of God in us that for those of us who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit of God, that He works these things in us as a gift of grace so that as we learn to love God and love others, that we don't celebrate that proudly and say, look how loving I am, but rather we say, thank God for how he's changed my heart and my mind and my life. It's all of gratitude. This is our goal, to love as the Spirit leads us in the image of Christ, in the likeness of Christ. And why is this important? Why is he contrasting love and speculation? Because verses 6 through 7, certain persons, again, certain persons by swerving from these things have wandered away into vain discussion. The King James pronounces it vain janglings, which I think is just a great phrase. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You have people in Ephesus, these teachers who want to be instructors. They want to be elders and pastors and professors and teachers and rabbis and philosophers, whatever it may be. What are the language they desired? But what they wanted to be experts in was speculation. 
that they wanted to be teachers of a law that they didn't really understand, that they were full of these confident assertions about what the Bible really means, but it wasn't backed up by real knowledge. It wasn't backed up by the truth. They were so confident about the things that they were proclaiming and teaching, like God's favorite color is orange, probably more serious than that, but they were swerving away from the truth, from what God had revealed into vain discussion. Just wasting time, honestly. Paul warns against this because losing sound doctrine is losing love. That we can't truly serve and love a God that we don't know. That the more twisted our view of God, the more corrupt our view of the Scriptures, the more distracted we get by these meaningless things, the more it pulls us away from our goal to love God and to love neighbor. They wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted to be people who were honored in their society. They wanted to be like the Jewish rabbis with the long flowing robes, the mighty tassels that when people walk by, they would say, look at that guy. Look at all those prayer beads. What a holy, righteous person. Or they wanted to walk around like the Greeks, the Greek philosophers of Ephesus with the long flowing togas that we see all of Homer and Aristotle wearing. That We see the people who would walk around with their always... Uh, rubbing their, their beard and thinking mightily of the, the great things of the universe where people will go, wow, look at those, those lovers of wisdom. They wanted to be teachers of the law without true understanding of the things that they made confident assertions of. Like, for example, if I were to stand up here and give you lessons on diet and exercise, like an like a exercise trainer, you would very quickly learn that I don't really know what I'm talking about. I can make to you very confident assertions, but I would run out of actual knowledge very quickly. This is actually like the best shape that I've been in in like 10 years. My workout regimen is work at Menards. Walk around and move boxes from here to there. That's my workout regimen. And so if I were to start giving you advice about workouts, about reps, about sets, about time and distance and all these things, you would very quickly learn. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. If I were to start giving you a lesson on coffee roasting, um, oh, this is a Sumatran bean. Oh, it's, it's ground in, in this area, and it's, it's cooked at this temperature and stuff. I don't even, I don't even know what those words mean, honestly. Um, you would quickly know that this guy just drinks Folgers. Like, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. If I were to start describing to you the architecture of this building, like, Kendall probably knows a lot more about it than I do, and he could call me out very quickly. I'm like, oh, look at these these Corinthian columns, or look at the, the, the atmosphere, I don't even know. I don't even know the terminology to pretend like I know something. And yet think of how often we see people making such confident assertions about what the Bible teaches that a moment's searching through God's word would disprove. A 30-second Google would show you that this person doesn't really know what they're talking about. Think of the, the prosperity preachers who proclaim with such confidence and such success, unfortunately, that God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and happy and blessed, and that's the goal of the Christian life. And if you're not driving around in a Bentley, it's because you're sinning and you don't believe hard enough. And then you read the Gospels and you see Jesus walking around homeless, the Son of Man with no place to lay his head. You see all of his disciples, all but John, being suffered and beaten and executed by the state, and even John dies in exile as an old and crippled man. That doesn't exactly look like prosperity to me. 
You think of uh, people who, the unbelievers, the people who are outside of the Christian faith, who you go on Twitter and they'll be very quick to tell you what Jesus really taught about X, Y, and Z. I even, I have a member of my family who was in the ministry for 40 years, doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, doesn't believe in the Trinity, doesn't believe the Bible's God's word, but just wanted to tell people to be nice and have a good life while you got it. Confident assertions without true understanding. And so that brings us to to how we see the law then as instruction for us as Christians. Let's look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. These people wanted to be teachers of the law, and we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The problem was that these people were desiring to be teachers of the law by misusing the law to their own benefit. They were unlawfully using the law. So, so what, do we talk, what's, what does it mean to use the law unlawfully? Well, if you're using the law as a way to justify yourself before God and others, if you are using God's revelation about what we are to do and say in this life as a way of puffing yourself up and talk about how holy and how obedient you are, you are not using the law lawfully. If you are trying to justify yourselves by your obedience, by your church attendance, by your donations, by your baptism, by being a good person and not killing anybody, as if that was a very high standard, then you're not using the law lawfully. You're not using it as God intended. If you're using the law to condemn others in order to puff yourself up, if you're using the law not as a mirror to examine yourself, but as a sword to cut others down in self-righteousness, you are not using the law lawfully. That's not to say that we can't understand how others have, have sinned against us and against their Creator. We should be very sober about those things. That loving others requires calling them to repent and believe in Christ, to turn from their sins and turn to a sufficient Savior. But if we are embracing the attitude of the Pharisees, that they puffed themselves up by cutting others down, then we are not using the law lawfully. Or if we also, like the Pharisees, are looking for loopholes and technicalities. They were experts in the law, and some of those were misusing their expertise in order to kind of find the fine print, so to speak. They were trying to work all the angles so that they could get the best benefit for themselves out of their obedience to the law. Take, for example, when Jesus confronts the Pharisees, and I think it's the Gospel of Matthew, I think chapter 23, I could be wrong. When he's pronouncing the woes on the Pharisees, he tells them that they're teachers of the law, but they don't obey it themselves. They, they talk about how you should love your parents, honor your parents, serve your parents, be generous, and yet they aren't caring for their own parents. Their parents are destitute because, oh, all of my stuff, it's, it's devoted to the temple. All of my possessions are a gift to God so I can use them to live off of, but I can't give them away to you. So, sorry, Mom and Dad, if you go homeless, but all my stuff is holy. Sorry. They were trying to find loopholes and technicalities to get the best benefit for themselves while still appearing like they were honoring the law. These are all contrary to the purpose that God has revealed His law to us. We know that the law is good because the law is a good reflection of God's good, loving, holy, just character. 
It's a reflection of the righteous standard that he has for his creatures. The law is good. It's not our enemy by nature. It's our enemy because we have broken the law. Because when we measure ourselves up to the law as a reflection of God's character, we see how far that we have fallen short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, in reflection of the law, see how we've broken. We've broken our relationship with God. We've broken our relationship with ourselves and with others. We have broken God's holy law and fallen short of his perfect standard. In the Reformed tradition that our church is part of, that covenant is part of, we, we see this through the lens of three different uses of the law. That the moral law of God, the reflection of his character, is used, yes, in a civil sense to restrain people's evil, that God gives us these commandments so that we know murder is wrong. You should probably stop people from committing murder. That's a right use of the law. But it's also meant for us to examine ourselves in light of God's holiness, as we've been discussing, to see our need for a Savior in light of our own sins. That a right use of the law, a lawful use of the law, is to drive us to Christ. To Jesus Christ who did obey the law, every jot and tittle, with all of his heart and affections, with all of his life. The only man who has ever loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and ever loved his neighbor as himself, for every moment of every day, for all of his life. That is why we can only be counted as righteous by the standard, by being united to Christ by faith. That when we forsake our own righteousness and cling to Christ, he gives us his righteousness as a blessed gift. And that is our only hope for standing forgiven and accepted before a loving God. So that he came and was born and lived and died as a man under the law to redeem those under the law. And so that he had a natural right as the eternal son to be called the son of God so also we in him are sons and daughters of God. And so he goes through, he goes through in verses 9 through 10 and gives a list of the law, of the moral law as a reflection of God's character, urging people to use it rightly, use it lawfully. Verses 9 through 10, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine isn't just obscure theological topics that people study in classrooms with no bearing on life. Sound doctrine encompasses all of God's revealed truth, including how we are to live as his creatures and as his redeemed. The righteous don't need the law revealed to them because if you're righteous, you're already living at right with God. So again, the problem is that none of us is righteous, none but Christ. So we need to see ourselves in a reflection of this law in such a way that we run to Christ rather than trying to justify ourselves. The lawless need the law. And this law we see here is expressed in the Ten Commandments. We read this as the reading of the law earlier, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 and repeated in Deuteronomy. We as Christians 
believe that this is a reflection of God's eternal moral law that's binding on all people of all times and places in a certain sense. That this is a reflection, a summary of what God commands for all of his creatures. And there is controversy in the last 150 years or so. A lot of people in the church have started to diminish the role of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. That through different articulations and understandings of how scripture is structured and the nature of the new covenant, they've started to take the teeth off of the Ten Commandments. They've started to disregard the authority of all of the Old Testament for us as Christians. But that's not the way that the apostles interpreted scripture. That the apostles writing in the new covenant, which we are in as Christians, used the law as a guide for us as believers. We see this here the way that Paul, at least in summary, goes through the Ten Commandments as a guide for the Christian life. Let's look at this here. So we have the law is for the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. What does that summarize but those who break the first four commandments? You shall love the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. You shall make no idols or images for the sake of worship. You shall honor and holy his name. You shall observe the day of worship to rightly honor it and keep it. The people who violate God's commandments, who worship other gods, who worship him falsely by means that God has not instituted, those who do not rightly reverence the name of God, those who profane his worship and profane his holy day where he's called us to rest and worship him. These are the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. We look at those who strike father and mother. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Oh, murder is right there. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Which isn't, it's not just you shall not cheat on your spouse. It's the whole realm of sexual sin, of sexual immorality, of any sexual relationships outside of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. This is what God has designed. And because God is good and wise and perfect, his design is for our good. So that no matter how we may want something else, how we may justify something else, it always falls short of God's good standard. It falls short of what he has revealed for us, for our good and his glory. This, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. He lists slave traders, man-stealers, the worst stealing of all, to steal another person and to treat them as property. Liars and perjurers, that's, that's the ninth commandment. And the tenth commandment, which is at the heart of all of these other commandments, to be envious and jealous and greedy for what other have. That's at the root that, that leads to all these other things. So let's look through these again. The, the law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient. Uh, think of it this way, that imagine you're going to babysit for a pair of twins. Let's call them Billy and Bobby. Billy is a pretty good kid. Let's say they're, they're 10 years old. Billy's pretty self-sufficient. You just got to watch him for the night, make sure he gets his food. He'll, he'll clean up. He's not going to break anything. He doesn't really have that many restrictions on him because Billy's a self-sufficient kid. He's, he'll be fine. Just make sure he doesn't get hurt or anything. Bobby, on the other hand, is a nightmare. Bobby has a list of rules and regulations that they leave laminated on the fridge because Bobby continues to press and push against what he knows is right and wrong. 
Bobby continues to break things and run around the house and tear things up, and so Bobby has a lot more restrictions placed on him. Not because Billy can destroy things, but because Billy doesn't want to. Bobby, on the other hand, if given free reign, would destroy the house and probably himself along with it. So, Billy, the righteous kid, so to speak, it's a metaphor, don't take it too far, he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need all of these rules, but Bobby, on the other hand, needs the rules to restrain the desires for destruction that he has. The law isn't for the righteous. They are righteous by nature of their relationship with God. It's for the lawless, which again is all of us. All of us find ourselves in these categories. So, reminder again that this is not a way of justifying ourselves, that we haven't murdered anyone, we haven't bought anyone from slavery or anything like that. Neither is a way to to hypocritically and proudly condemn others, to look down our nose on those that we find in this list. That in an honest and fair reflection that all of us in some way have broken these Ten Commandments, that all of us find ourselves guilty of breaking the whole of the law. As the book of James says, if you break the least of these commandments, then you've broken all of the law. So we say, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that if you even look at a woman with lust, that you've already committed adultery in your heart. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Again, good things, don't do those things. But he says, even if you harbor hatred towards your brother in your heart, you've already murdered in your heart. These things go down to the root of our affections and our desires. It goes down It goes down deeper than just the outward displays of our actions. And so these are things that we need to guard ourselves against, knowing that these are contrary to the sound doctrine that we've been called to, that we use these Ten Commandments, we use the law of God as Christians, not as a means of justifying ourselves, but as a reflection of God's character and the way that we should follow after him. That we as Christians, Jess and I have been studying these from the one of the great Reformation catechisms, the role of the Ten Commandments and what they require of us. It's been very helpful and insightful. But the first commandments, that you're supposed to devote yourself fully to the worship of the true triune God, to rightly worship by the ways that he has instituted, not by idols and images or corruptions and perversions of what he's revealed himself to be, to rightly honor his name and his character and every way he's revealed himself by, and to honor his day of worship. That we in the new covenant, we gather on the first day of the week, what scripture calls the Lord's day, on the day that Christ rose from the dead, to celebrate not the first creation of all things, but the new creation in Christ, and as a foretaste of the new creation of all things that is still yet to come that we are called to honor our mother and father, especially it's Father's Day, and all those in rightful authority over us, that we are commanded not to kill or to do anything that would harm or devalue the lives of others around us, that we are commanded not to steal or even to lust after other people's possessions, to work for the good of our neighbor and of their possessions, to fight and contend for the truth, God's truth especially, but also for the good name of our neighbor and to be content with everything that God has given to us, to be grateful for the many, many ways that he's blessed us, to not be envying and jealous of what other people have that we don't. And you'll find people still today who seek to justify these things, 
people even who claim to be Christians, who will continue to make confident assertions contrary to Scripture. You will find people arguing left and right that there's no Sabbath command for the New Testament, that there's no reason that we have to worship in any special way. My Sabbath is a Tuesday when I go out to the park. That's, that's not a biblical way of thinking about it. Or the way that people will try and justify any form of sexual immorality of so long as they're not hurting anyone, so long as they're sincere. What, what, what can we say about two consenting adults? People will even try and work around the language and say, well, the word doesn't exactly mean that. It doesn't exactly mean homosexuality. It's more like pedophilia. We know that's bad. Even though the word literally means one who lies with a man, a man who lies with a man. There's nothing about age or consent in there. And that's actually a direct translation of Leviticus 19, a man shall not lie with a man as, with, as one does with a woman. It's an abomination. That's the standard of marriage that, that God has given to us and Jesus reinforces. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, he said, have you not heard it said? In the beginning, God created man male and female. That a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. But God has joined, let no man separate. That is Jesus' affirmation of human sexuality and marriage to the exclusion of all else. The way that people try and use even scripture to justify things like abortion. That they'll twist this verse and that verse to say, well, it's not really alive, it's not really a person until it first breathes. Contrary to what God's word clearly says about what a human being is and the rights of the unborn. Slavery, I mean, there are still millions of people enslaved today, but think about the way that in generations past, even Bible-believing Christians would twist Scripture to justify enslaving other people. Uh, The slave Bible that people in the transatlantic slave trade used to justify that these people aren't really human, so it's okay. So many confident assertions contrary to sound doctrine, so many sins contrary to sound doctrine but why why does this matter because 11 sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god with which i have been entrusted that these things are contrary to the gospel of god that when we live as christians in a way contradicting his word and commands to us when we justify our sins and justify ourselves in self-righteousness when we try and use the law as a weapon to put ourselves up by putting others down, we dishonor Christ and his gospel. We live out of accordance with him who has called us to new life. We live out of accordance of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are called to live in love and in holiness in accordance with sound doctrine and the gospel of the blessed God. What an amazing phrase, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. May that always be our aim and our focus. So to conclude, tying all of this together at the end, Timothy's charge in Ephesus was to ensure sound doctrine was promoted and false doctrine was refuted. That false and speculative doctrines and beliefs and practices distract us from Christ and his gospel. That our aim must always be love, true love of God and his neighbor, as God has defined for us. 
and true love which only comes from a change of mind and heart by the work of the Spirit. That swerving away from sound doctrine is swerving away from Christian love. That the law is good because it shows us our need for Christ and how we should live for him. It makes me think so much of the ways that I have transgressed his law. It makes me think of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where Paul goes down a similar list of sins. Don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? The lawless, the slavers, those who practice homosexuality, the, the adulterers, the, the immoral people, none of these will inherit God's kingdom. But, no sweeter words can I speak today, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by faith in this Christ who has come to forgive and redeem. What a blessed truth. The heart of the Christian life is love expressed in sound doctrine and practiced in holy conduct, all in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Let's pray quickly as we close. Lord, I pray. I pray for your help. I, I've spoken much today, probably too much. And I know that your word says that in an abundance of words, there is no, fault, there is no lack of fault. So I know that there's, there are areas that I have not represented you entirely or faithfully enough. So I pray for your, for your grace that you would use every true word that I have spoken to impact the minds and hearts of the people here. Lord, your word is a blessed gift to us, that your law is good. Teach us to meditate on it day and night, that it may be a guide to us, not a burden, but a blessing to show us how to live in right relationship with you and with others. We pray your blessing on this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again.